the stress in surgery happens often because there are things that happen that we can't control, whether it's in surgery, whether it's with the patient, whether it's the, there's a lot of things that happen. And at the end of the day, we all have to remember that we can only do what we have the ability to do given what we have. And, you know, I think the second we start realizing that we actually don't control the results, we only control our actions. That's when I think you can you can kind of separate the anxiety a little bit. If you focus on your actions and leave the results to the universe, you know, that's really, I think, what the main focus should be. This is Living As You. Here's your host, PQ. What's up, everybody? Hope this episode finds you taking on the challenges in your life with patience, trust, and a remarkable self-love. Today on Living As You, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Sanjeev Bhatia, a physician for many U.S. Olympians, currently an orthopedic surgeon at Northwestern in Chicago, and actually one of the hip surgeons that operated on me in 2015. Dr. Bhatia has been a trusted mentor and an amazing friend over the years. Today, we get a behind the scenes look into some of the practices that have made this healer so compassionate and so effective in his practice. Time for some Chi-Town vibes. Oh yeah, let's do this. Dr. Bhatia. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? How's it hey, going? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. What about you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Just at home right now. This is great. It's good to see you. <laughs> good. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. So as we all know, medicine is a long path. So I'd love it if you can discuss a little bit about how perseverance has shaped your own personal journey into medicine and maybe a particular moment or two along this path in which you really had to exhibit perseverance in overcoming a particular obstacle? Sure. No, that's a great question. And I, I, I think for anyone who's considering a field in medicine or anything else that has a long track record, and, and to be honest, in medicine, we kind of focus on the long track record, but it's kind of like that in a lot of other fields. You know, there's, you start out, you get a job as an entry-level assistant, or you see the same thing in finance, entry-level investment banking, and then they go to something else, and then they go to something else. And then, so it's a, it's a similar pathway in a lot of other careers. It just tends to be more regimented in medicine because it's, it's a formality. But, you know, perseverance, I think, applies to pretty much anything in life that's worth having. You know, there's a lot of, you know, the, the challenge in medicine is that, or the challenge in a lot of these careers is you really have to think forward. And you have to think about the fruits of your labor down the road for it to be for you to really bite down and grit down and, and get through the current moment and the current crises. So for me, it was kind of one of the one of the questions that people often will say is, you know, why do kids of kids whose parents are doctors, they tend to go into medicine. And some would argue that, well, that's because maybe they talk more science and they talk about organic chemistry in their house. And that's not true at all. You know, my mother was a, she's a family medicine physician. 
really, I think the only thing, the only way that that helps is that it allows those kids to see what the other side is like. And they, they're able to, to visualize the other goal, you know, the, the end result, you know, so for me, you know, that I kind of got my first taste of medicine through my mom. I saw the good things that she was doing. And that was very inspiring. As far as you know, some tough times that kind of along my road, I remember there were a few there were there are a few hard points in particular that I remember. So number one is just getting into med school. Getting into med school, I would argue, is probably many would argue is harder than getting into fields like orthopedic surgery or anything else like that. It's it's really a um, it's a it's a very competitive process and it's a big process. And I remember it was very disheartening and very very challenging because the whole process is a very it's a roller coaster ride. So, you know, that was a moment where I remember it was, it was very visualizing the end result and the goal and just keeping that always in mind, I thought was very helpful. You know, there was a book that I read when I was a kid. It was called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And that book really kind of changed my life because one of the tenets that they talk about is keep the end in mind. And that's keeping your end goal always in center, visualize. A lot of people write it down and look at it every day. That just helps, that keeps, keeps it as a reminder. Another moment I remember, which was very tough, was my first year of med school. Uh, it was really kind of a reality check for me in terms of classes getting very hard. It was a very different experience socially. It was a very different experience from a standpoint of not being able to, things didn't seem like what I, what I expected it to be. You know, I expected I expected med school to be just like medicine was like. And the first couple of years are very, they're very science heavy. They're very, it's very classroom heavy. So, so I remember it was, uh, it was a little bit of a challenging time mentally and emotionally, but that was another moment where you can, if you can just remember that the, that what your goals are in life, you're always going to be able to power through that. Times like that kind of go onwards throughout as you progress in medicine, you know, there are similar things that occur as you're progressing through residency, through the, there's certain years of residency that are harder than others. There are certain board exams that come along the way. But really, the end of the, at the end of the day, there's a will. There, I strongly believe there, there's a will, there's a way. And anything worth having in life doesn't come easy. And that's a philosophical fact, you could even argue. So yeah, I would, I would uh, encourage all your viewers and listeners to always keep your goals in mind. You know, know that, you know, whether it's medicine or any other field that you're doing, you know, if you're able to help people, if you're able to do what you love every day, um, you're never going to work a day in your life. Don't be discouraged is kind of what my, what my message is. I love that. I absolutely love that. So take me into a particular, like the particular time where you're, you're, deep within that first year of medical school. And like you're saying, you're having those, um, those struggles, those struggles with trying to probably find your place, figure out what is this reality versus kind of your expectation going in. And it's, it's hard to keep that vision in mind. Paint me, paint me a picture of how you're able to keep some of those core tenets from that book you mentioned earlier in your mind when you're going through those, those periods of darkness. Yeah, so the challenging thing for me was that I went to undergrad at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, you know, a lot of friends there. It was a great experience. And then when I went to med school, I went to Northwestern uh, for med school. My first year of med school, you know, was a huge reality check. Number one is, from a social standpoint, 
the gregariousness of my uh, fellow med students <laughs> was remarkably below where the gregariousness was of my fellow Badgers in Wisconsin. So that was an adjustment that took a while for me to get used to. Secondly, the classes were hard. I, I was used to doing reasonably well in college, but then when I got to med school, I remember the first, the first few months, because you'd get a rank in where you get on every test. So I was still passing, but you know, I, I remember I was kind of on certain subjects, I was at the, the lower end of the class, like the lower 25%. And it was very disheartening and very bruised my ego a lot to not be at the top of the class. So that, and then the, the other thing that was affecting me as well at that time is getting used to living in Chicago. Up until uh, and this is, I think, is a very common thing for people who are in their early 20s, especially just graduating college. College is a very awesome experience where you're around a lot of your peers. And then all of a sudden you get thrown into kind of a jungle where people are of different ages. And, who, and all those people who you're around and you see in the city, they, they all look like they got it together. They just seem like they got everything going on in their life. And you're just like, where do I fit in in all this? So, you know, I think, uh, you know, the struggles that I had, I think, as, as a 22-year-old are not inherent to me. I think that's everybody who's of that in their lower 20s. And the key, I think, is to remember that I remember a lot of people would say, you know, after age 20, after 25, there are people that I met, they'd say, after age 25, it's all downhill after that. It's all like, that's what a lot of people would say. That's what a lot of 20 year olds say. <laughs> at least so, at least uh, the ones I used to hang out with, but nothing could be further from the truth. As life goes on, as you get into each decade, there's even more things that you are, you just get happier to be alive. And I think just remembering that and having that perspective is a very key thing as you go through some of these periods. Big time. How do we navigate those moments of transition, whether it's from going from a college to out in the real world, whether it's transitioning from being married to having a family? What would you say? Great point. Great, great point. Yeah, life throws a lot of changes and transitions at you. I'm glad you brought up the marriage and children and everything else like that, you know, because that's been, those are big transition periods for me as well. And I think the key is, is to remember that there's a human tendency to believe that change and transition is bad because we're scared. Things are going to be different. I don't know what it's like. Uncertainty for most humans tends to create stress and a lot of despair. And so I think the key is to always remember that, you know, the universe at the end of the day has your back. And if you really have faith and trust and that your support system is going to be there, things are going to work out for the best for you you're doing things in the right way, you're doing things with the right attitude, with the right mindset, with the right goals. I think if you do that, and if you have faith in the things working out, it generally does. And it's a hard thing. I think the key is, is to just remember that, especially if you get, if you get married, or if you have kids, or if you go to a new school, or start a new job, graduate college, or go to college, anticipate that the transition is going to affect you emotionally and just be prepared for that. And if you, are, if you can do that and if you can just kind of tell yourself to keep going, you'll generally be very happy at the end. Where does that trust come from that you've been able to exhibit along your journey? And a lot of people, myself included, struggle with it. When you're down, it's easy to say, 
I don't know what the end result is, but a quote I always love to say is, we can only connect the dots when we look backwards. That's good. That's a great quote. Yeah, that's kind of like the, it's along the similar lines of something that a lot of people say, including myself, is, you know, everything has a reason. And really, you know, when I look back at a lot of the lives of my friends, a lot of people I know, you know, they, they lose their job in one place. They have the, like a rock bottom moment in life and where things can't possibly get any worse. And then that causes an intervention for them to move somewhere else or do something. And then they go there and then they meet someone that they end up marrying. And then you say, oh, well, that's why that happened. But it's kind of like, a, so that's exactly what you, you're exactly right. So as far as a trust goes, I think you have to have trust. So it's kind of, you know, whether it's your faith, whether it's your court system, key, I think there's a lot of things that I think, whether it's faith or whether it's court system, they all sort of feed into the same idea in ultimately trusting that the universe or the system will guide you into the right direction. And, you know, I think if you have faith, there's another, there's a very, another very powerful book. It's called The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. I think that book is a game changer for anyone who wants to think more positively. And really, you know, that, the, that book really will hammer home and, and will illustrate that the way that you think, you know, whatever you think, that's what ends up happening. And truthfully, I think there's probably some aspects of this that we don't quite understand. And whether it's metaphysics or whether it's, you know, the way that our thought in many ways creates our actions or leads subconsciously to our actions. And I think that that's what the key is, is if you think positively, power of positive thinking is a very, it's a very powerful, active, powerful action. Agreed. Agreed. That's fantastic. Hey, I'd like to pivot into something right off that in terms of the power of thought influences action. I'd like sure. you to paint me a picture of when you're preparing for battle. And when we talk about perseverance, we all have battles every day. And I think something sure. that you are fortunate in the medical field to get to battle and experience and help people with is through surgery. And sure. you could be the first one to tell me surgery is not easy. You've trained for years to be able to do the procedures you can do now. Paint me a picture of your preparation. What's going through your sure. mind? What do you physically do before a battle like surgery? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a, I love that question. You know, what happens a lot, what happens in orthopedic surgery is you're training in residency and you're the assistant surgeon. You know, you're assisting uh, a more senior level surgeon. You then go to fellowship and you're assisting a senior level surgeon. You know, you're assisting Mark Philpon and others. And then you go out and practice and now you're the guy. And it's kind of like very similar to, it's like a quarterback being on an NFL team who was second string, and then all of a sudden they go to another team and they're now, they're now the starter. So part of what happens, there's, there certainly is a, initially there's a kind of a sense of, it sometimes can be overwhelming that, you know, I have to do all these steps, I hope I'm going to be able to get through it. So just to kind of walk you through, so let's say I have a very complex revision case that's on the schedule, one that I haven't done in years or one that has a lot of techn technical complexities and uncertainties along the way that we can't quite predict based on imaging or based on uh, some other patient factors. So number one is the way that I start my day, I like to meditate in the morning. So I wake up and I meditate for 10, 15 minutes, really just kind of calming my mind 
and trying to center my focus, focusing on my breathing. And, and I think that's a very powerful tool for applying a lot of your, the full capability of your, of your body. Then from a technical preparation standpoint, either the night before or the morning of, of that surgery, you know, I like to write down every aspect of that patient's case. So this is what their history was. This is what their exam was. This is what their imaging findings were. Here are some nuances of the medical history, like such as risk factors for blood clots or risk factors for something else. This is what we're going to do. This is our surgical plan. And I literally write down every step of our surgical plan. So, you know, make portals here, make do this, uh, remove bones here, do that. And that really, I think, helps me move fast and efficiently in the OR. And then and I also write down some aspects of the post-operative care. So, you know, I actually have these surgical plans from every, every case that I've done for, well, every, you know, every complex hit that I've done in my career. And it's, it, it eventually gets to be routine, but it's a good way to sort of prep for that. And I think there's something to be said about writing. When you write stuff out, it's a, it helps you feel more confident and it, it, you tend to grain that in your mind better. So do the same thing for interviewing. So for instance, you're going to apply to med school. You know, one of the things that's going to happen is, you know, you're going to interview. And by the way, this, your experience with hosting these podcasts is probably the best interview prep <laughs> ever. <laughs> but one of the things that often will happen and, and that will be helpful is if you write down some of the common questions that they ask you, your relative responses to it, it allows you to just kind of collect your thoughts a little bit more methodically. And, and that, way, that way you have at your fingertips all the variations of things that you can say, and it allows you to be a little bit more smooth on your feet. So combination of all those things, I think the meditation is a very key thing that has been proved. There's a lot of studies that, have, that show how critical meditation is for not just focusing high-level tasks, but also uh, maintaining a positive attitude, post-surgical recovery, stress reduction. It's really a powerful tool. When you're in the operating room and you've prepared, you've done this meditation, you've done the prep, you've gone through the checklist, and then you encounter a challenge. Things happen in surgery that you have not planned for. Touch upon what you do when you're like, okay, guys, we're in the ring. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the key to it is so that that definitely happens. And, um, and it happens in, in a lot of other fields and things of life, too. And really the key is, is take a step back, take a deep breath, and then just kind of collect your thoughts and then just move forward. And really, you know, I think the, you know, you can panic or have emotions and have an emotional event after the fact. When you're after surgery in the locker, you can do whatever you want. But at that moment, key is, is to just be calm, take a deep breath, make sure you're exerting the full weight of your mental capacity at that task at hand and, and you'll get through it. One of the things in surgery that I think a lot of, my wife laughs at this a lot, is that, you know, one thing that happens with a lot of surgeons is that the stress in surgery happens often because there are things that happen that we can't control, whether it's in surgery, whether it's with the patient, whether it's the, there's a lot of things that happen. And at the end of the day, we all have to remember that we can only do what we have the ability to do given what we have. And, you know, I think the second we start realizing that we actually don't control the results, we only control our actions, that's when I think you can, you can kind of separate the anxiety a little bit. If you focus on your actions, 
and leave the results to the universe, you know, that's really, I think, what the main focus should be. I think a lot of individuals look at you and other doctors as fixers. Hey, I go to a doctor to get my problem relieved. I go to a doctor to be fixed. And like you're saying, there's so much out of your control. How do you communicate that to your patients? So two things. One, my, I actually look at myself more as like a coach. Yes, you know, I operate on them and I fix them up in certain ways, but so much of the recovery is based on, take hip surgery, for example. You good experience with this. You know, part of the outcome is what happens in surgery. Part of the outcome is what happens in rehab, which is the way that the body is healing from the surgery. And then part of the recovery is also the mental aspects of it. And so, you know, my job is that the two things that I can control are doing the best job I can in the OR. And I never leave the operating room unless I feel things went perfect and that I wouldn't change anything else. And then the second thing is, is that we, we really try, I really try to make sure that the patient is as positive as possible. You know, it's kind of like we're in a, we're in a halftime huddle and, you know, you really want to tell everybody to you know, keep their head up. We have a good shot at pulling this out. So, you know, really the, with patients, we just want to keep them positive. You know, we want to make sure that we give them the best anatomical realignment in the operating room and then help them be positive in the post-operative period, help them regain trust and confidence. Those are kind of the two key things. I love that. Take me into a case, a defining moment in your medical career so far. Perhaps someone has come in. Uh, with some sort of emotion or a particular gruesome injury or pain they've been dealing with for decades. And you were able to kind of transform them and help them throughout the healing process, particular defining moment thus far in your career. In my first year of practice, that case was probably every, uh, every week. So <laughs> it was, uh, you know, there was very, you know, the first year of practice is a saying that goes that your first year of practice is the best training of your entire life because seeing all this stuff firsthand and there's so many things that you don't learn along the way that you really learn your first year practice. But there are a lot of cases where patients would have some pathologies and there's so many that even count like that. But you just as an example, you know, there's a case that we, I remember I did my first year practice. It might've even been my first ACL reconstruction. Standard case, you know, really good kid, had an ACL injury. But when we, when we did the surgery, uh, he wound up having a very long graft. And, and, you know, I won't bore you with the details, but long story short is there was a mismatch between the graft that's the, that we use for the ACL and the size of his tunnels. That's an important part of the important aspect because in the ACL surgery, you have to really get good fixation on both sides. Otherwise, the graft will be loose. You know, I remember in that case, it was, it was like, oh, well, this was unexpected. But again, applying those same principles, staying calm, Thinking that way, you can think of all your tools, good fixation. We did an alternative uh, fixation technique that was very solid, and the guy did great. And I think one of the key things that you see in surgery is that there, there's a lot of different ways to do things. You can do things this way. You can do things this way. Uh, you can do this, this part this way, this part this way. And I think the, the more tools you have in your repertoire, the, the better surgeon you are. So, you know, that was a defining moment. It was very early in my practice and it just kind of showed me that there's a lot of different ways to do things and, and things work out very well.
And as you've progressed so far as a surgeon with the hip, the knee, the shoulder, how do you continue to challenge yourself to keep learning, to keep being a lifelong learner as if you were that first year surgeon once again? Great question. Yeah. So, you know, really for me, the, you know, I love research. Research is kind of, you know, one thing that's cool about orthopedic surgery is that things are always changing. We're always finding better ways of doing things. I like to research different ways of doing things and uh, try to try to improve my outcomes and those of my colleagues around the country. You know, I like to look into ways in which you know, newer technologies can be added. What's interesting in medicine is one field of medicine will develop a certain technology that'll be very useful for, say, ENT or spine surgery or something else. And then that same technology, you can often borrow and apply in a different fashion to orthopedic surgery or another field of surgery. So that aspect of innovation, I think, is just being, is just being explored. Another cool thing that's happening that your generation really is going to be a big champion of is you know, the way that augmented reality and artificial intelligence touches the way that our, you know, everything we do. So healthcare is about to experience a giant revolution, both with 5G technology, with the influence of Internet of Things, which is where how every so many different devices are having Internet capabilities or Bluetooth capabilities. There's a, there's a major innovation with regards to the way that we teach people, the way that we educate people. So I think we're going to see a major change in the way a lot of things go, and it's going to be very exciting. Please, please go into that. I am so, I'm so curious. Where do you see medical care and healthcare going? I think it's about to get shaken up very big. So a few things that are, in my opinion, are game changers. One, 5G is going to make the ability to make a lot of things possible, which means we may be doing robotic surgery across the world, across the United States, because the bandwidth of being able to capture things in real time is going to be that, is that uh, impressive. Uh, number two, robotic surgery is going to be a significant force in healthcare. And you're already starting to see that both in orthopedics, as well as in general surgery, as well as other fields of medicine, there's a lot of advantages to uh, the precision capabilities that these very advanced robots are capable of providing. Number three, I think there's going to, I think the Apple Watch is really a highly disruptive tool that allows us to deliver monitoring as well as various healthcare capabilities within the home. I think it's going to translate into better outcomes with fewer complications you know, helping make sure most, more patients are on the path that we want them to be when they leave the office or the hospital. One thing that's changing in, in orthopedics as well is that our ability to deliver, to improve the biology of the healing process is going to transform tremendously. You know, there's a lot of new cellular uh, machinery that is being developed called nanotechnology designed to improve the, very specifically improve the healing process and just and things that you learn about in biochemistry, it's designed to change the way that those things happen to try to improve things. I think our ability to prevent certain things is going to also uh, transcend. You know, we're already, we're already starting to see that. We're only at the surface, I think, in orthopedics. With, hips, with hip preservation, that's just being, that, that surface is just being scratched. Knee joint 
preservation, that surface is also being scratched. So, you know, those I think are the biggest things. I think those are really the main things. And then, oh, and then uh, artificial intelligence and augmented reality. AI will help us better predict what outcomes will be put after surgery and certain procedures. So that way, you know, if you come in for a surgical consultation, we may be able to predict almost to the exact T, this is what you will be like, this is what you will look like after the surgery. And I think that'll allow more people to be happier with what they, what decision they choose. Augmented reality will make a big difference in our precision and our ability to educate future surgeons and medical professionals and, and also patients. And I think it'll also lead to more precision in the OR. It's really going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out. It's remarkable. Just, just thinking about some of that stuff. <laughs> it's, it's unreal. It, it blows my mind. And as we start to dive into kind of what we have done with the new technology, Google, Amazon, Facebook, social media, everything coming out in the last 10, 20 years, with great technology and advancement comes great responsibility and yeah. privilege. And as we right. dive into this, especially with people's health, something very confidential, something very personal, and we get into robots, we get into 5G, we get into artificial intelligence, how can we still respect the privacy, the personal aspect of medical, the, the medical system, the ability of doctors like you to interact and let people know that they're not alone on this journey in tandem with all this technology? That's a great question. And I think that's one of the challenges that technology is going to have. And with the advent of social media and how things have been depersonalized, I think that's even more critical. So I think it rests, that burden and that challenge rests both with physicians as well as the technology companies. The technology companies have a very big itch to try to take that data and then use that to market if a, lot, if a technology company got hands on your personal health data, they would love to say, hey, this person is diabetic. Let me send them diabetic-specific ads. This person has heart disease. Let me send them heart, di heart disease-specific ads. And I think that's the wrong approach. I think what we need to be very careful of with technology is that we always maintain privacy with regards to that private health information. So companies like Apple are very pro privacy. You know, they're, they're all about giving you your health records and allowing you to choose what you do with it. And I think that that is going to be, we need to insist on that going forward. And within your role as a medical professional, how can you push back towards these technology companies or even these giant systems like the pharmaceutical system that has a monopoly and can say, hey, I'm going to just prescribe whatever, or even insurance in terms of pricing. How can you use your platform or other physicians to say, no, we're not going to stand for this? So as a single doctor myself, I can't really do a whole lot on that. However, I think, and this is where your generation is going to be very critical in doing this, is that your generation of physicians stays unified and collectively uses champion certain ideals for patient care and for the healthcare system in general, then real change will happen. So the key, I think, is to stay unified and that way you're a powerful force. 
I think that the challenge that happens is that different position groups tend to get disbanded or tend to be not see eye to eye on certain things. And then the ultimate message or the ultimate decision ends up being something that no physician ends up being supportive of. And unfortunately that happens too often or not. Can you touch upon Dr. Bhatia, some of your own personal goals in terms of medicine research, how you're going to hopefully be able to incorporate some of this new technology going forward with your practice at Northwestern? Sure. Yeah. I'm still figuring that out myself, trying to figure out what the, the best thing, you know, really how all this unfolds and so forth. But if there's a, you know, some goals that I have is number one is I want to be very, I never want to compromise any patient that I see in the operating room. And uh, so that's always a goal of mine is that <clears throat> that's always going to come first. You know, that individual person, whoever it is, that's always, they're always the priority. Aside from that, I do have goals to try to see if there are ways from a research perspective or from a development perspective, if there's ways that we can harness some of these newer technologies to, you know, really disrupt the way that we do things and, and improve patient outcomes. There's a lot of things that we do in medicine that are, we just do because they, it's been done for a while. And I think really the, I've been very fascinated by the style of thinking that a lot of big tech companies have and they champion which is think differently and be very creative and come up with solutions that are outside of the, the normal uh, frame of reference. So yeah, you know, my goals are really just to kind of push the envelope with, you know, seeing how we can improve patient outcomes. And then, uh, but at the same time, you know, I always want to make sure that each patient gets the attention that I would want if I was a patient. I absolutely love that. And again, being extremely fortunate to have gotten to see medicine from that personal perspective of being a patient myself or a researcher and getting to, to obviously see you in full force in the operating room with Dr. Philippon. I think I've been very privileged to see certain aspects of medicine that the general public doesn't always get to see. That being said, there is a lot of myths about medicine, about what exactly you do on a day-to-day -day basis out there in, in society. What are two to three maybe myths of medicine that you can debunk for our listeners? Sure, sure. So number one is, one myth is you don't have to go to school for 100 years. You really have to go to, you go to med school for four years after college, and the rest is really work. So like residency is not school, you know, you're, it's basically like you're having a, you know, it's like, it's a job, it's a ton of fun. It's a lot of fun along the way. That's a, I want to stress that more than anything else. It's a lot of fun along the way. Some of the best times in my life were as a resident, as a med student. Um, I met my wife in med school. You know, I, uh, some, of the, some of the best times along the, uh, in life are, are during that period. So that's number one. Number two is all doctors don't work 100 hours a week. Most that I know have probably some of the best work-life balance that there is. And one thing that I think a lot of people don't see is that there's a lot of, you actually, a lot of this is actually in your control. If I wanted to work 10 hours a week, I could figure out a way to do that. I would make less money if I worked 10 hours a week. And, and I think that's, that's why people tend to work a little bit harder. But you have a tremendous amount of flexibility in this field. At the end of the day, I really think this is the best. And again, I'm biased. But I think this is the best job in the world when it's done right. Because it gives you a lot of, I think there's, there's not many jobs where you can 
touch people and improve people's lives and do things that you love all at the same time. So yeah, you know, I, I would just I'd tell your viewers to find something that they love and they'll always be happy. And, and there's a lot of, you know, life is always going to be ups and downs and highs and lows. And, but if you really focus on the positives, you'll be very happy with whatever you do. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I, I want to end just with one last question for you, Dr. Bhatia, as, sure. a, as a, a medical professional, and you've been around physical, mental health your entire life. What are three things that people should do every day, whether it's habits, daily practices to achieve and become healthier, both physically and mentally? Great question. Great question. So one I would say is have gratitude, have gratitude for everything. So that includes, and I'm, as I'm recovering from my knee surgery right now, <laughs> I've never had more gratitude for my ability to walk. You know, I'm realizing how important that is. And so always have gratitude with regards to what you, just everything you have in your life. And you may feel like you don't have a lot to be thankful for, but you, even simple things like your, the fact that your legs work and that your hands work and that your mind works and have gratitude for that. Number two is, as we talked about earlier, is just focus on the, the things that you have control over, which means the amount of effort you apply, goals that you have, your, your attitude, everything else, everything else is out of your control and, and just accept that. Focus more on the, on the effort rather than the results. That I think will help keep you positive uh, mentally. Number three, from a physical standpoint, I stress all my patients, staying active and staying fit and being healthy with regards to having a strong body and exercise and taking care of your heart. That's gonna go a long way uh, mentally and physically and helping you maintain longevity. Those are kind of my three things. Love that. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the conversation. It is always a pleasure. You have so much to offer to this world. And not only people are thinking about medical, like medical school like me, like there are so many people that can learn from you. So appreciate that. The honor, honor is all mine. I, I appreciate this, Patrick.